This, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Amanda Delheimer. There's a quotation I've seen around a lot recently. It says, here's to strong women. May we know them, may we be them, may we raise them. This month, and every month, let's raise a glass to the strong women in our lives. In honor of Women's History Month, Second Story is proud to share this story celebrating female friendships by Deanna Myers. I've recently moved twice in four months, more accurately. Both times I found myself mining my belongings, seeing what I should and could give, clear out and tuck away. Here's where I might make a terribly stereotypical joke about Marie condoing the shit out of my life. But I won't. <laughs> the oft look forward to act by many friends of moving women, I'm referring, of course, to the clearing out of closets, took place many times over that four months. The finale of these several acts of purging culminated in a housewarming this past summer where I hosted dinner for two of my very close friends, Kristen and Kimberly. They made short work of the half-folded pile of colorful fabric, giggling, modeling, sorting through my memories and making new ones right there in front of me. At the bottom of the pile, there lay a dress that Kimberly eventually found and held up. She thrust it at Kristen. This, she said, is a Kristen. Is it? Kristen cocked her head to one side, deciding if she agreed. Oh, yes, yes, I exclaimed emphatically. The dress, navy, A-line, with a lace cutout back and cap sleeves did, as a matter of fact, look pretty perfect on her. I insisted that she take it. What I did not, or rather could not bring myself to tell her, was that it was the dress I'd worn to my mother's memorial nearly four years prior. The dress in which I'd stood in front of nearly 200 people to deliver a self-written eulogy because my family had designated me as the performer of the group, the apparent deliverer of all speeches. It was the dress I'd picked out the week after my mother's passing on a warm fall day while shuffling slowly along the shops of Clark Street in Andersonville, donning sweats and a pair of large sunglasses. Anyone who knew me then would have been shocked to see me without my best friend Leah. Nonetheless, I tried that dress on while quietly sobbing to myself on one side of a dressing room curtain that suddenly seemed far too thin while interacting with some poor, unsuspecting sales associate. Knock, knock. <laughs> Hi there, my name is Candace. How's it going in there? Fine. Do you like need another size or? Nope. I have some other items you might like to try. <laughs> cool. Great, so is there like a special occasion you might be looking for? Nope. It didn't occur to me until I was in the midst of Candace parading a long line of dresses past me like the world's most awkward merry-go-round. 
that the purpose of a shopping companion in those circumstances is to prevent exactly this kind of scenario. Societal norms dictate that it's considered rude to tell a well-meaning, albeit annoying, salesperson to leave us the fuck alone. <laughs> but that oversharing in the form of, say, blurting out to a complete stranger, it's for my mother's funeral. Uh, we, were, we had a really complicated relationship, and like I have a lot of feelings right now. Her death was kind of unexpected, but like kind of not. Like, she was not well, but like <laughs> it came really suddenly. <laughs> and like I'm sifting through a lot still because I feel like I'm kind of a slow processor. So like if you could just like... Leave me alone right now, that'd be great. <laughs> Is also not typically accepted behavior. <laughs> I was not alone that day by choice. If you consider having far too much pride to call your best friend for help, not a choice. <laughs> uh, Lee and I had been at odds for quite a while. We were both artists trying to figure out just what the hell we thought we were doing with our lives. I'm going to quit acting, I think. We were sitting at a quiet table in the corner of a cafe. I was trying to write my mother's eulogy in my head. I couldn't concentrate on what she was saying. How do you sum up a person's life in one speech? Huh? I'm gonna quit acting, she said. Okay, <laughs> that might be the best thing for you right now. That few feet between us might as well have been miles. Our losses laid out end to end, stretched in a seemingly unclosable distance. What I couldn't wrap my mind or my heart around was that while I was mourning the loss of my mother, she was mourning the loss of a dream. A vision she'd had for herself that had traversed years and countries and relationships. She was grasping at a shred of commiseration, trying to empathize with a loss she could not fathom, drowning in a depression that I had not seen or acknowledged for months. After that day, the business of dealing with a family member's death still ensued. If you've ever experienced an immediate family member's death, you know that it doesn't just happen once, but over and over in the form of phone calls, uh, arrangements and miles upon miles of red tape. Time dripped by in this utterly surreal way and before I knew it, it had been weeks and I didn't know how to deal with Leah and my mother's death, so I just didn't. Eventually, I cut off contact. Here's what no one tells you when you're a little girl. The friendships you make with other women, the ones with whom you share a deep, an inexplicable kinship becomes some of the most integral and formative parts of you. There is an undefinable connection, a bond that is consuming and lasting and unseeable. They become the lifeblood of your beating heart and when they are lost, it can sometimes feel like the most wretched heartbreak you will ever experience. It felt to me like I had suffered two losses in one fall. I thought of Leah as I sat in my kitchen with Kristen and Kimberly. A swirl of guilt and embarrassment crept up in a way that felt nearly tangible. I tried to think of a way to explain the dress. How does one do that exactly? Do you brush it off? Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> that's just what I wore to my mom's funeral and that only happens once, so <laughs> I don't need it anymore. <laughs> Maybe that's not right. <laughs> I considered another approach. What, that old thing? Oh, I just like wear it once to my mom's memorial, like it's just whatever, it's fine. 
I chose instead to, to take another swig of wine. I got a little more tipsy. I attempted to roast almonds in a pan for the salad, and I burned them twice. <coughs> Kimberly quipped, how is it that this incredibly competent woman in front of me can't manage to roast some fucking almonds in a pan? <laughs> Kristen stepped in reassuringly. The trick is to just keep them moving. She took the spatula out of my hand, and I retreated to my wine. Kristen gingerly pushed the almonds around the pan while I forcibly shoved my feelings aside and <laughs> <laughs> finished my wine in one swig. Despite the fact that we knew one another because we'd made a play together, an admittedly vulnerable act, laying all of my cards out in front of these women felt completely foreign and uncomfortable for me. Even while we were in process and I'd divulged information about my estranged relationship with my family, I still set myself aside, uh, I still set myself at a distance from the information I was giving and my emotional response to it. After rehearsal one night, we found ourselves at the Grafton, which was not unusual. Okay, Kimberly had said, drink up. There's something I have to tell you. Two whiskeys in, and she decided I'd be just tipsy enough. So listen, she turned to me seriously. I knew that face. Only a few months of knowing one another by then, and I already knew that was the look I saw when she was about to deliver a difficult but necessary truth, or read you a quote she saved for you. Kristen and I, she motioned to Kristen, who sat up and nodded in her usually perky way. We creeped on you on Facebook a little, and I think we found some of your family and their info. I took a sharp breath. I was certain a lecture was forthcoming. I rolled my eyes, and I leaned uncomfortably and defensively on the bar. No, listen, she said sternly. I'm writing a letter to your father. I want to tell him who I am and about the work you're doing and how proud I am of it. He needs to know that you're doing well. He deserves that. And he deserves to know that he has made the stupid fucking choice not to be here for it. I was stunned. Not once, ever, had anyone in my life ever stood up for me without me asking. My eyes welled up. Somewhere in the center of me, my heart swelled and my stomach dropped. On the exterior, it probably looked m something more like lots of eye blinking and a uh, long, awkward silence. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I cleared my throat a lot, and then I muttered a, thanks, <clears throat> but you don't gotta. <laughs> Which trailed off into me at ordering another whiskey. Neat. I've become quite practiced at hiding an inner world that, from an early age, seemed a little too dense for most of the people around me. I'm the only adoptee in my family, the only person of color, the only artist, the only liberal, the only girl in a family of six, and the youngest child, by nine years, of a woman with what was likely undiagnosed bipolar disorder. Growing up, how a day went was dictated by my mother's moods. Her happiness could fill the house. During the holidays, our home was filled with decorations, presents, and Christmas music on a relentless loop from the moment Thanksgiving reared its overstuffed head until well into March. Oh yeah. After her death, we discovered that her collection of Santas reached the several thousands. 
might know that by now. <laughs> the second time I've referred to it, you'll be shocked to hear that I've never actually read the life-changing magic of tidying up. But I wonder just the same what Marie Kondo would have said about that collection. <laughs> and if any of it would ever help me decipher the extreme swings that occurred between the moods when my mother could light up an entire room with her laugh to the time when she told me I was too stupid to go to college, or when she changed the locks on the house on me, or when she said to me that the drunk driver who'd hit and nearly killed me was someone God sent to punish me. I learned to cope with her volatile outbursts by feigning stoicism. If I could be bulletproof, there'd be no reason for her to load up with an arsenal of insults and punishments. Those habits die hard. But little by little, in the months between the start of our play and the time that I moved into my own apartment, my own personal two-woman cheer team set themselves to the task of tearing down those walls and building in their place a monument to female friendship. One that without, I doubt I would have been open enough to reconnect with Leah after three years of silence between the two of us. Okay, so if this were a movie, there'd be a montage right now where you'd see Leah and I running into each other repeatedly over a three-week period, uh, rekindling a lost friendship with zeal and renewed respect for one another uh, after a great deal of personal growth and finally real realizing that we needed that space and we reconnected at the perfect time. It'd be set to some intolerably maudlin indie-sounding music like The Shins or Ben Gibbard. <laughs> I will give you a moment now to envision an unspeakably cool hipster who went to clown school in France. Yeah. Her wild, curly auburn hair, a razor-sharp acerbic wit, a septum-piercing and impeccable style. With my understated and Midwestern derpy earnesty frolicking through the Chicago summer. That was right before she left for grad school on the West Coast. Recently, I learned that the phrase blood is thicker than water has been adopted incorrectly. The original passage is, the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. Yeah, let that sink in. <laughs> that means that its common use is actually opposite from its intended implication. And I've been sitting with that for quite some time now. The thought that without intending to or knowing it, we form these bonds that become such a huge part of who we are and what carries us through. And when I think about this past July, watching Kristen walk out of my newly warmed home with that dress, I realize that sometimes we carry the weight of our friends' hopes, hearts, and even grief without ever knowing it. And that sometimes the beauty of it is that we don't always need to. This story was curated by Anya Tin, directed by Liz Rice, with live music by Jeff Shaler. The Second Story podcast is produced by Liv Oath. 
Second story is supported by the MacArthur Fund for Art and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, a city arts grant from the City of Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, the Chicago Community Trust, the Arts and Business Council of Chicago, the Illinois Arts Council Agency, the Arts Work Fund, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Amanda Delheimer, and this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.